I'm Aeson, it's Friday, and this is the Friday Show. Looking backwards, looking forwards, upwards and down at all the big city news of the past week. Joining me this morning, I've got the heavyweights, let's be honest. Howard and Stefan. Morning, Howard. Good morning. How are you? Yeah, quite literally a heavyweight at the moment. <laughs> I'm all Excellent. Right, yeah. Stefan, how are you? Good, good. Wonderful, wonderful. Um, well, look, guys, uh, I'm not going to mess around. I'm going to dive straight into the opening question because uh, it's interesting. Would you be in favour of FIFA changing the rules surrounding number of players a club can send out on loan? Howard, I think I'm going to start with you. Uh, yes. But if you're going to ask me for a number, it's like, it's how long is a piece of string? I do think... I think the big clubs, let's be honest, get away with far too much uh, in all areas of the game. Uh, how we're allowed to put youth teams into lower league trophies like the Checker Trade. How you know the? <clears throat> I think the system of compensation for young players, you know, could be a lot more for for teams that are raided. But at the end of the day, the general theory that would say yes to this question is. If, if a club wants to buy a young player, and we're pretty much talking about young players here, aren't we? If we're sending out on loan, it's, you're not really talking about many... Well, I mean, players that fall out of favour, doesn't really matter if you send them out on loan. Maybe you could link it to the age, because I think with youth players, a lot of big clubs now, if you're going to sign a player, you should only sign a player that you think's going to one day get into your first team. Some teams, and Chelsea, I think, send even more out. I'm sure City got tons out. Are doing it in just as a way of financial support, in a way, knowing that they can churn these players through the system and make a lot of money with little intent of ever playing them. And for that reason, uh, yes, I think I do agree that it should be limited. Uh, but the key point is, is what's best for the player. And I don't think just churning, being churned through the system by a big club is really best for the player. On the mm. other side, though, what do you limit it to? There's no, there's no magic number that's fair. I mean, you just, you're just making up a number, aren't you? But mm. there has to be a limit. I just don't have all the answers there. Okay, Stefan, uh, does there have to be a limit? I mean, you know what City of City and Chelsea have set up is effectively a football university. Yeah. So you go. You know, they they recruit people from all over the world, players that may or may not have had opportunities elsewhere. Um, you'd think that somebody would have picked up the talent, but who knows? So they're they're putting some supply into a university system, uh, some demand into university system, and the supply is those players. And um, their benefit is that they get effectively first dibs, having loaned them out to a variety of clubs. Now, does the player lose? I don't know. I mean, I think the player, to me, the player gets a top-class football education and then goes off and may or may not have a career elsewhere. Uh, who, where's the loser? So, I don't know. Uh, I mean, fundamentally, the clubs have been set up. Chelsea and City have set up their academies, as far as I can see, uh, to, to need rules that allow lots of players to go out on loan. Um, so uh, this change will, will be a problem for them, I would think, because uh, it's going to change the way that they do things. But 
I don't see what the problem is. I don't, I don't see what, what, what... You don't You don't ethically have a problem with the idea of a for-profit academy rather than an academy designed first and foremost to create, uh, to develop players for your own first team. Because I think that's the distinction for me. If you look at the, the Chelsea model and the City model, it's very, very clear that actually that's a for-profit football development school that I would say 95% of the young players that they bring in, they probably know already. They ain't getting to the first team. It's about, can we develop him, loan him out three or four times and then flip him for a profit? But what's the problem? The problem with that? I mean, you know, so I, I, I accept all of that, but there's a value exchange. So the player's coming, the player's not, it's not like the player's getting nothing out of it. The player's coming to an unbelievable academy uh, getting the, the best of everything, and then uh, and then doesn't play for uh, the team that's top of the Premier League. Well, okay, well, I'm sorry, you're not playing for the team that's top of the Premier League, but that's life. But everything else has been fantastic for you. You've had mm. incredible money, relative. Uh, you've had the best education, and we've even helped you find a new club. Well, I, I, is there is there a good of the game question? Maybe well, why is it part of the game? First? You know, players well, are getting I'm asking a level you, of training. So I'm, I'm asking you, like for the Premier League itself, it feels as though the narrative is very much that big clubs hoarding young players and continually loaning them out is somehow detrimental to the English game. So I'm I'm not saying oh, it is. Oh. I'm asking whether you feel it is. No, yeah, that last point is absolute. Bollocks <laughs> to me. I mean, okay. that's been going on for about 20 years, the detrimental to the English game. And it's like, well, to be honest, we've never been, we've probably got the best squad for a long time right now. So mm. the argument's fallen over. We're winning youth, you know, at younger age tournaments. We won three world tournaments last year, which we've never done before. So there is no evidence that English players and we don't have good English players coming through. So, and to be honest, uh, Stefan's put a very strong argument there that, that, you know, and to back him up further, the ethical argument, ethics in football, I think we've, <laughs> I think we've passed that. Yeah, that ship sailed a long, long time ago. At the end of the day, yes, some will be lost, but as Stefan says, what if, if City and Chelsea and other teams didn't do this, some would be lost anyway. Mm-hmm. Loads of, you know, would never would end up playing in lower leagues or never make it. They are getting the brilliant, you know, they're getting the best of everything uh, and no one's been forced to do it. Uh, but let's be honest, as I said originally, yeah, let's be honest, it is, it's done for financial reasons, I think, for, for City. You know, City. I think Brian Marwood said in the early days of the academy, we want one player coming through every year, but deep down... One, maybe he meant it, and maybe we st- we do still want that. But if you consider the numbers that are going going through that system, that means ninety nine percent of them are just there to make money for the club. I don't yeah. don't keep me asleep, <laughs> don't keep me awake at night. I'm, I'm not that bothered, but I don't think I could have a huge argument against it if some some defined limit was brought in. Do you does it frustrate you when you see? Um, for example, when you see players perpetually being loaned out, young players at City, 
Does does it ever frustrate you? Do you ever look at it and go, what's the point? Why are we spending this much on a player when we can give this guy a chance? And even if he's not, it's an it's an it's an argument that Steve esteemed company will often make, which is that you know we can have our best 14, 15, 16, even seventeen, but we should be able to integrate some of these lads who maybe don't have the top, top, top talent rather than farming them out on loan to Bredo or wherever it is that we send them, let them be squad players. Or is that just an, a, a kind of idealistic hope that isn't really what's best for the club? Yeah. Uh, well, does it frustrate me? I don't see enough of the players to know if they're good enough. So, you know, Steve sees, sees a lot more of them. Uh, mm. No, it's, it's a, as I said before, it's a results game. Simple as that. And where we're getting 100 points in the league, and where we, if we were in the league because we buy Mares rather than bring a youth player through who may, you know, results may slightly suffer, uh, it's easy to just forget it and uh, enjoy the success. Uh, perhaps we should always, you know, we should make a we should bring one through every year, you know, just guaranteed always have one there on have one on the bench, but it doesn't really frustrate me much because I don't see enough of the players. I mean, if you're really, really top level, then you will get into that squad as Foden has. Yeah. Okay. Um, Stefan, <clears throat> a bonus opening question. Uh Brian Diaz is going to Real Madrid, whether it be January or next summer. Are you bothered? Well, I mean it, look, it's all part of the same conversation, right? So it's all very well saying they should come through. We know who the, the best players are in the academy and we know who the best players that have left over the last few years are. Uh, there's not many of them. And we can't think of many, if any, aside from Sancho at the moment, who looks like they're the real deal. So, um, you know, it, I guess that vindicates the club not bringing them through to be in the first team. Uh, and that probably applies to Brahim. I mean, he's not good enough to play at the moment in the first team. Uh, he won't be good enough to play for Real Madrid. Uh, I don't have any problem with him leaving. I, I understand it from his perspective because it's just not going to change at City. I mean, you know, he's so far down the pecking order. I mean, what sort of scenario would it be before he before he got a first team run? I mean, it's, you know, it's almost impossible. So for him, I think it's the right thing to do to move. Um, I just uh, if I was him, I wouldn't be going to Real Madrid. I, I know it, it's um, obviously exciting and flattering to be offered, but but I can't see that it fixes his wanting more game time problem. Um, and it's going to happen more and more. I mean, you know, the Foden situation is one that if Foden can't play versus West Ham or Leon in those circumstances, um, or let's say if there are injuries on Saturday. Uh, then when is he going to play as a young, properly young up-and-coming player? You know, he he won't be in a position to be a regular until, uh, you know, 2021. You know, it's crazy. Well, so that's fine. What, is that a problem? I think it is. I think it is, because I think it, we're, we're relying on him being a City fan. Uh, and that's why when Brahim doesn't have that added element of, of one probably being one place up on the pecking order and two not being a City fan... Then he walks out the door. So I think it's going to happen more and more with, you know, with our young players. It, it's fine. It is, it is what it is. But um, I think we have to accept that those players are are going to move, and therefore our academy is what we discussed for the last ten minutes, which is 
uh, a football factory, probably for yeah. other clubs. Well, mm. as I've said before, as, <coughs> as, as Diaz walks out the door, to little fanfare, we'll have signed someone else, some 16-year-old wonder kid from somewhere. You know, it happens. It's just the it's a conveyor belt, isn't it? People come in, you know, we took Sancho off Watford. Uh, totally. Liverpool took Sterling off QPR. We took it off them. Real Madrid might one day take him off us. Uh, players move. We lose one. We gain one. Uh, we'll, we'll, there'll be a few regrets. Sancho, probably. Uh, but that's the way it goes. Uh, I think with Sancho as well, I think we have to be careful in terms of... I remember Denis Suarez going back to Barcelona and playing three or four times in that, certainly in the first year, I think the second year that he was there, he got some first team football and he looked like a footballer and everybody said, oh, look, this is going to be egg on City's face. And he's kind of disappeared again. I think that with all of these young, young players, and they are young, young, when you're talking about 18, 19 years old, it's rare that you get the Raheem Sterlings of this world. Because I think Sterling was even more developed than Leroy Sané was, even more developed than Gabriel Jesus was at 17, 18 years old. Um, I think it's rare that you get those players who can step in to a high-pressure Premier League first-team environment at that age and not be phased by it at all. Um, So, yeah, I mean, it's... It depends on position as well, a position on the field. You know, I think someone like Ibrahim... With his physicality, um, he's not going to—he's not ready, and he's not going to be ready for a while, probably. Um, and he's just down the pecking order, so he, so he's going to leave. I think, uh, in any event, Sancho is—I put Sancho in a different category because we tried everything to make him stay. Uh, he wasn't going to play; that's obvious. So we were giving him some assurances, but he wasn't going to stay, and. Uh, he let us down anyway in terms of the way that he dealt with it, and he left. So, frankly, even if he's a massive success at Dortmund, I still don't think there's egg on City's face because they didn't do anything. You know, no. What did we do no. wrong? We tried to keep well, him. Yeah. We didn't play him because he wasn't ready. And it's easy, easy with all... hindsight to see how he's doing his season. Say, why didn't we play him? But let's be honest, no one was calling for him to be in the team last season. No one expected him to have this instant impact at Dortmund. Uh, no, I but think- just to play devil's advocate for a minute, Howard, um, I think it, I think it's pretty easy to step back now with hindsight and make the argument that, well, you know, Brahim Diaz all the way through this process has been further ahead in the pecking order than Sancho ever was. And yet at 15 years old, when we brought Sancho in or 16, whenever it was that Sancho landed at City, Sancho was the great hope. Like he was the English lad from the academy like Fo- he was, he was, he was kind of considered like Foden to be gifted at a level that was so high that he was definitely going to make it. And all the way through his developmental years at City, there were players ahead of him in the pecking order, even at that youth level. That's before you start looking into Pep coming in, signing more and more and more attacking players. Look, I feel like we could probably do this as a whole podcast because I think there's a, a conversation to be had about Pep, his belief in what he wants to do, the pressure that he's under to win, and whether maybe as he... If Pep's here for a long time, yeah. so let's say that he's here for five years, I would like to think 
that three or four years into his process, where he's maybe won two Premier League titles and done a Champions League, that there'll be a different approach to the squad as a whole. Now, maybe I'm wrong and being naive and, you know, in the end, it's always going to be, if there's a Mares available, you ain't going to take the chance on a Sancho, but, you know. I was just going to say something very similar. You know, we've had very distinct stages in this club from the day of the takeover. So it was all, totally. it was all the first bit was just buy anyone we can, throw money in their direction. Then we had to get them off the wage bill. Then we stuck, you know, then when we were sex with uh, success, we didn't have to do that. It's like get the, get just get the top class players that fit the system. Now Pep's come in and uh, yeah, ideally we want, you know, perfect world. We'd have 11 locally born players, just all youth players from any, you know, in that team but of course that's not the real world but as you say once we've had success under Pep maybe then the next stage is to really reconsider what we use the academy for as the I next stage after this I can't see, yeah, I can't see him risks. changing I mean you know as I say if he's not going to take risks away at West Ham when we're in the form that we're in or Leon we'll talk about but if he's not going to take risks against West Ham uh, when is it? He's not going. He's not going to change. I mean, he obviously doesn't see it in the way that we see it, and yeah. So it is what it is. Uh, you know, I just don't see it changing. Mm. I do. I, I. 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 Maybe it's maybe it's naive hope, but I would hope that in a couple of years' time, as I say, if he's got a Champions League under his belt, that you know, I'm not. I. I I'm. I. I'm not asking for an extreme. I'm not asking that you know suddenly we go right. We're going to have 11 senior players and effectively have six or seven youth team players who are going to make up the rest of the squad. No, not at all. But I think maybe what you say, Stefan, about the Foden conversation about how, well, if he can't get on the pitch against West Ham and against Leon and again this weekend, that's kind of what I'm getting at. That I would hope that that risk, an individual singular risk at a moment in the season like this where you come down with injuries, I would hope that... As the longer Pep's here, maybe the the less pressure he feels in in the immediacy of his job, and because of that, it maybe makes him a bit more flexible um, or more prepared to take a risk. But we'll see. And maybe maybe you're right, and it's just not going to change. Um, okay, let's talk about West Ham. Actually, we're going to talk about West Ham and Leon, um, Stefan. If you look at the way that West Ham attacked City. Uh, and the chances that they created. Um, were there already signs going into the Leon game that Leon would score goals against us? And in general, what do you make of the two games in terms of the... We've, we've made a lot about our defensive stability in the last six weeks. And what I want to know from you is where the line is between those chances coming from a lack of defensive stability and those chances coming from just good attacking play from the opposition. Yeah, like a quick disclaimer is that I watched uh, I watched West Ham largely on a mobile phone in what I would describe as hell, which is a trampoline centre at a <laughs> five-year-old's birthday party. So uh, it, it wasn't the best environment to judge uh, all the detail, but obviously I've watched the highlights afterwards. Uh, to me, I think there's consistency in both games. I don't think it's anything systemic in terms of people have figured us out. I think it's a combination of two things. One is 
a level of complacency and and lack of focus uh, and and a couple of injuries taking us off quite off peak uh you know we still scored six goals yes we conceded two yes we conceded some more chances uh but 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 I think it only we've talked about it before it only takes a, a relatively small percentage before you don't look quite as good as you know our peak our peak level and I think that's what you saw in both games mm. okay um howard is the Premier League in danger of becoming too easy for City? And what I mean by that is just if you compare the the different levels between the Champions League and the Premier League, you can see, for example, that we can be pretty open against West Ham, yeah, yeah. and still really slap them without really getting out of second gear, without being punished at all. And yet three days later or two days later, you come up against the Leon side, who aren't top of Liga. Liga is considered to be a weak league somehow, and yet they really should have won that game of football and were well deserved in the draw that they got. Is there is the disparity between the Champions League and the Premier League something that we need to begin to take into consideration? What do you mean by take into consideration? Though? Well. I mean, it, yeah, nothing we can do about it. Yeah, I mean, yeah, there's a disparity. You're in the Champions League, which, of course, does not mean champions, but it still means top few sides from every country. And you'll mm. get the odd gimme. You'll get some club you can steamroll. And, well, we've put six past Shakhtar Donetsk, which is ridiculous in itself, considering such what a tough team they were the previous season. But, uh, yes, you're playing, but the French team may be weak, but it will still have three, four teams at the top that are very good. Even if, you know, it can be weak by having 10 very poor sides, which, you know, I don't know, I don't watch it enough. Uh, it doesn't mean that any team you face in that league will be weak. It just means generally it's weak. And obviously PSG have this same problem that they they effectively have to raise themselves for the Champions League because everything else is almost a gimme in a way. Uh, yeah, it's something, you know, I say Pep's... Pep's beginning to really dominate the Premier League in a way. I know we're only two points clear, but his philosophy and his work is beginning to really bring fruition against other teams. Yeah. Like the Champions League, you've got a wide, you've got skillful, varied, much more varied play. And it, yeah, you can't just impose yourself quite that easily. I said on the Leon review, you just it's a lot harder to go to European away game and results across the last decade will show this for all the big teams than it is to go away in a league game. Yeah, you know, there's bigger travel, there's bigger you know, it's just bigger uprooting and you the crowds are probably more passionate because it is the Champions League. Obviously not for our games, but uh if for the teams that don't boo the anthem beforehand. Yeah, it's more difficult and for Leon you know, there's this disparity that they're not really doing it in the league. They're 15 points behind PSG, but they probably come up against every week teams parking the bus. Uh, mm. So, you know, that's why the, the, the drawing home to Nantes or other mid-table lower half teams. But against us, Pep's not going to park the bus. So it kind of suits Leon because they they have that attacking talent. They can play their natural game. Yeah, uh, yeah it's... I don't know. I wouldn't say... The Premier League is not 
that easy yet. I think people are getting a bit ahead of themselves because you know City are scoring buckets of loads and loads of goals, but uh, I don't think we're really at the. You know, we're not a PSG stage here, are we? It's still. I think we are, you know, of, mate. I think nah. we're on course for a hundred points again. So I'm not being funny, but it that's like. Uh, oh, you're falling that, into the trap. You're falling into the complete. the end. The, the the uncompetitive Premier League trap. Yeah, we're having a, it's a funny season where yeah. a number of the top teams are winning a lot of games and not losing a lot of games. I agree with you there. But mm. I'm not having that the Premier League is all of a sudden uncompetitive after years and years of United winning five out of seven leagues, eight out of eleven, you know, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. Liverpool winning the the league for the first twenty years of our lives. I mean this is not an uncompetitive Premier League. This is okay, but I'm not arguing that the the league itself is 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 uncompetitive at the top. I, what I'm asking you is the disparity between the top, let's say six, to make it safe. The disparity between the top six and not the rest of them, but let's say between the top six and the bottom ten is getting to the stage. I think where you can begin to, those top six sides are beginning to look home and away at the bottom 10 and going, we're taking maximum points. This season, there's a little bit of that, and I'd only say a little bit, and let's see the whole season first of all. But to compare that with the Lyon game, Lyon, we are playing uh, a Champions League game in a cup, so it's a cup game anyway. We all know what can happen in cup games. The other team raises their game because... They're at home, it's a big game, it's a crowd, get behind them. And then you have, I, I see it a little bit akin to some of those World Cup games where you have certain players who recognise that this is their big chance to make, uh, to, to make a sort of um, a show of themselves in, in the shop window and, the, and, they, and, they, and they play up. I mean, I, I watched a bit of um, the Porto game against Schalke um, and... You saw Porto, they'd already qualified. Both teams had already qualified. And you saw players, first of all, doing some fantastic things. Secondly, really clearly trying very, very hard and clearly raising their game in a game that was completely meaningless. Now, they're doing that because the Champions League has an odd... It, it, you know, it is a shot window, like a World Cup is a shot window for these players. So mm. I, don't, I don't think you can compare the two. You know, the, the run-of-the-mill league game is not the same as one of six Champions League games away from home. Pep said himself he's never won three on the bounce in the Champions League, ever. Yeah. Away from home. So it's obviously not that easy to do. And, uh, and then you layer on top of that our sort of team-specific issues, uh, team selection, uh, injuries... A uh, little bit of complacency, as I mentioned before, in my view, and I don't think it's wholly surprising that we ended up drawing, you know, very, you know an ultimately a tricky away game with Leon. I, mm, I've got a, a that kind of leads me nicely on to the next question. And Stefan, I'm going to start with you again. Um, if you if you look at the performance and result in Leon, as you kind of touched upon. That there was an element of injuries beginning to take their toll. The question I've got is, is our squad's depth a little bit overrated because of Pep's ability to fit square pegs in around holes? Mm, no, I don't think so. I mean, you're talking <laughs> about uh, Mendy, Jesus, Silva, De Bruyne. I mean, it's not... 
it's four players of pretty high quality and I don't think there's many teams or squads in the world that are not going to feel some kind of uh, a reduction of overall quality from from losing those four players um, mm. and and the the round hole square pegs I mean he chose to do that he didn't need to play Sterling Mares in those positions he had a very easy round hole round peg I can't even I've lost track of what he should have just played Foden it's not that difficult and uh, yeah. uh, and I think it would have been fine and he didn't have to play Zinchenko if he didn't want to he could have played Delph who is as as good as 80% of the left backs in Europe in my view yeah. and so he caused his own issues in terms of that uh, but I wouldn't I, I wouldn't read too much into it because those are four massive injuries our best player our best player this season and two other important players. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Howard, just as a kind of final word on, on, on the two games this week, how do you, we, we talked on the review afterwards and kind of after the Leon game and kind of said it was kind of fun to review a game that wasn't a cakewalk yeah. for City. Um, how do you feel looking at the two performances together? Are there, is there anything that's popped out of it that you kind of go, oh, that's something we need to keep an eye on as a little bit of a concern moving forward? Or in general, do you kind of end this week going, yeah, we're still really top? Yeah, it's, no, yeah, the latter. Okay, I mean, the, perfect. There's lulls, you know, there's always lulls in the season. Uh, yep. Pep put the West Ham, you know, conceded chances down to... Uh, to the international break for what for one, and it is there are factors, so many factors. Uh, but yeah, they won four nil. So, and Leon was tricky. So be it. it you know, lives just can't just waltz our way through every game. Anyway, yeah, you know, let's just take a step back here. Uh, they're going to be tough games. There's going to be bad results. There's going to be players having off days. It's not always going to be like Celtic. No, <laughs> it's not or PSG. I, I do uh, think this is. I do think this is important though, in terms of if you think about previous seasons, even when we won the league, and and possibly not last season. It was a bit. It was a bit different, and obviously we're only halfway through the season. But the overall level, that kind of base level, where even when you don't have a great day, we're still not. We've not played badly. We've not had an embar- you know, it's not been an embarrassing performance. It's been slightly off. I mean, that's that's an amazing consistency level of consistency. I think, and it's incredible what they've done for so long now. If you look at this run, you know, it stretches, I don't know, sixty odd, maybe even eighty games, where the level, even when it's fallen, has not really been shocking. Well, yeah. in the league, we've conceded five goals. That is, in all season, those five goals have been scored from 11 chances, uh, major chances for the opposition. Isn't there one from open play or something? It's, a major, cha- a major chance is uh, basically one where the opposition has got a 50-50% minimum chance of expected to score. And we've yeah. conceded 11 of those major chances all season so far. Tomorrow will have reached a three-month period of not conceding a league goal from open play. So I think that was the Newcastle game. It was, but uh, the, the handball... Stones hasn't conceded a foul in seven weeks. 
Uh, Laporte's never lost a game, I don't think. I mean, just, you know, <laughs> there's lulls and then there's City lulls. And to be honest, I don't think, you know, a bad result against Bournemouth will all be a bit worried. But I don't think we're at that stage just yet. So, No. Okay. Um, before we talk about City-Bournemouth, uh, it's the Merseyside derby this weekend. Thought that'd be a good game to uh, to have a little chat around. Um, Stefan, your thoughts on the job that Marco Silva has done at Everton? Has he stabilised them? Uh, yeah, I think he's put them back in uh, back where they kind of should be for what they've mm. invested. And unfortunately for them, probably their limit. Uh, they're in a league table that stops at seventh. Yeah. And uh, I mean... They're probably six at the moment, but you know, I, I think it. Are they six? I think they are. Uh, I don't see. I don't see them finishing top six. So he, he's are, doing yeah. a he's doing a good job in that. He's at the top of his realistic league table. Uh, is he doing an amazing job? Well, no. Unless he cracks a league that he shouldn't be in, then I would say he's doing an okay job rather than an amazing job. Uh, but they have spent a decent amount of money, so. You know they should be probably uh, where they are, and I do worry about them away from home. They're not, you know, they're good at home, but they're not great away. Yeah, I mean, I I put in the notes that I I watched them get against uh, United uh, the other week at Old Trafford, and I was pretty disappointed to be honest with you. I don't think that they United are a really poor side this season. Or they have been so far this season a really poor side home and away, um, and it was just disappointing to see them not try and lay a glove on them and not play with... The, I, I feel as though teams who have gone to Old Trafford and played with any semblance of positivity and confidence, I've, with the exception of Newcastle who collapsed, I've got some out of the game. Um, yes, yeah, Silver as a manager, I think there's only won like seven away league games during his time in the country. So obviously it's not take. He's not got Pep's players at hand or you know, Liverpool squad or whatnot. You know, he's not had the greatest teams in the country, but it's still not a great record, really. Mm. Listen, before we talk about Liverpool, uh, Howard, I'll ask you first, do you think Everton can take something from Anfield? You're going to give me some hope that we can maybe open up a little bit of a bigger gap this weekend? Yeah, well, the, yeah, the manager went to Chelsea and got a draw and I didn't see that happening. Yeah. Uh, and he was quite savvy tactically that he, uh, you know, they uh, they took Jorginho out of the game basically, so they they uh, cut off the the supply uh, to the forward players, uh, which no one else had worked out to do so far this season. It seems, uh, yeah, the the record for decades is, is absolutely appalling. But what happened fifteen years ago doesn't really matter. Uh, I still think Liverpool will win this, but Everton, yeah, they've won. I think they've won five of the last seven. So they're in all right form, uh, and what what they did in this summer, they, they signed six players who were all twenty five or under, and I think the six signed before of the previous regime uh, were all over twenty five. So it's a much more youthful side, and there's a bit of a there's a lot more attacking flair. Obviously, we're comparing with Allardyce before, so yeah, <laughs> you need to go over the halfway line and pretty much improve matters. But yeah. I'd, <laughs> But then again, they're not going to be too attacking at Anfield, are they? So I still think Liverpool will win this. But yeah, I think they've got. I mean, even Allardyce got two draws last out of three games last season. 
but he did it with about four shots over the three games and 33% possession. So we're not going to see an Everton like that. They're going to be a bit more ambitious. Uh, they can they can definitely get some. You know, they've got plenty of attacking talent now. Uh, you know, and he's revitalised a few of the players that are already there, like Keane and Sigurdsson. So, yeah, I, uh, Liverpool are obvious favourites, but they can get something here. Okay. Stefan, do you think that Everton can get something there? Yeah, they can get a point. I don't, I don't see that they can win the game. Um, but they can get a point. I think particularly on the back of this week, you know, that it's, it's a good time, you know, cliche, but it is a good time to play Liverpool. Um, especially they've had, a, you know, Everton have had a week off. Liverpool had a very tough game away from home on a Wednesday night. Uh, you know, it's all set up for, for Everton to, to, to do better than usual. But their away form is one of the worst in the league. I mean, they've won one game, they've drawn three out of six. So, uh, but they can get a point. Yeah. I'd almost I expect li- them to get a point. Yeah, I don't think Liverpool have lost at home either for a long, long time. So No, they haven't. I think the point's the most we can ask for. So There's actually three derbies as well on Sunday. So It's the triple derby Super Sunday. Uh, so it's, it's Chelsea-Fulham, uh, Arsenal-Spurs then. Uh, Everton, uh, Liverpool, Everton. So, not bad viewing for the armchair supporter. <laughs> no, and I, 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 it was a toss of the coin between talking about Arsenal, Spurs, and, and Liverpool, Everton. But I did decide to go with yeah. Liverpool, Everton. Hey, listen, I've got a Liverpool-related question for the pair of you. I'll start with you, Howard. Um, so they spent in excess of hundred million pound on two centre midfield players in Fabinho and Naby Keita, and neither of them can get a game. Their centre midfield is Henderson, Genie Wijnaldum and James Milner still. Their supporters are getting a little bit antsy and a lot of questions being asked. Is Klopp getting away with it a little bit? Do you feel that certain other managers, if they had spent that sort of money on players and then those players literally between them had like four stars, there'd be a lot more being said? Or is this simply a case of, players coming in from a different league needing time to be bedded in. Yeah, well, there's needed time. I, mean, I don't know what is being Suthikarin does get, get him plenty of leeway, doesn't it? Uh, in his character and his passion and whatnot. I think I did see you know, online, we, we live in a bubble on Twitter, so you don't see everything that's said. I'd have to go onto forums and Liverpool forums, which I'm not going to do, to know the true feeling of Liverpool fans. But I did feel there was a, a you know a change of attitude after the defeat at PSG that people were get yeah that there was a lot more discontent uh, with Liverpool because obviously in the Champions League they've lost five away now if you count the finals being an away game that's five away losses on the row uh, which is not good at all and you know question would be asked if the Klopp's again the manager that just falls short all the time as for introducing players yeah that's fine obviously we've had the same thing with Bernardo Silva uh, and with Mares to an extent, and yeah, yeah, it's fine to like, yeah, when you've already got a very good team, you don't need to rush big players in and put them straight in. But Fabinho literally has disappeared. Uh, this is not, you know, Bernardo Silva was still getting into squads, getting on the substitutes. Yeah, you know, he, was, he was involved in games, he just wasn't starting for a few months. And Mares as well has obviously started getting a lot more football within a couple of months of joining. But yeah, we were told Keita was the final piece in the, the jigsaw puzzle so to speak he was the one that was going to turn them into champions and yeah just it's strange that we've seen so little of them 
Uh, not even to be on, you know, getting 20 minutes here or there. Just, it's, I think Henderson's out, <coughs> so we'll see if, you know, if Cater might get started on Sunday. But these are big signings. Uh, it is strange. It's not, mm-hmm. you know, they don't have I to think... be a star of the team yet. That's fine. It could take a year. But it's just when they're being left out of squads. I don't know if Cater's been in squads at all or not been, you know, looking at the subs bench a lot. But I know Fabinho has just been, yeah, that's very strange. It just sounds like he's not adapting to what Klopp wants at all. No, also there's a lot of, uh, I've seen a lot of stuff in the French press in the last week about how Paris Saint-Germain would like to take him in January and that Liverpool might be open to that, mm. which I think is quite interesting. Just one thing, um, on on the Bernardo Mares thing, I actually don't think the situations are comparable. Mara's oh, yeah, playing that's what I said. Yeah, within two months. Do you know yeah. what I mean? Even, even if... It, yeah. And Bernardo, I remember at the end of last season, somebody dropped a stat that I went, wow. No player made more appearances. No, that's what City I said. He was getting... Even in the start of his City career, he was getting on as a sub, but then he yeah. was slowly introduced. So that's why it's different. Fabinho and... Exactly. He did Fabinho 53 games nowhere in total. to be seen, yeah. Yeah, Stefan, do you want to do you want to chime in here? Do you think we're being a little bit harsh on the two players and on Klopp, or is there something to be said for? I just I think it's quite interesting that they they go away to to Paris Saint Germain, which is a really big game for them, um, and Nabikai and Fabinho don't play, and you kind of look at it and you go, well, on paper, if you'd have asked me in the summer why have they bought those players, I'd have said, well, they bought those players because. Henderson, Milner and Wijnaldum is not a centre midfield for the Champions League. And yet you get to this stage where they're in danger of being eliminated now. And both of those players haven't really played. Mm, I mean, look, they've got 33 points in the Premier League from 13 games. I think uh, it's very hard to... It's very hard to criticise Klopp, I think. but um, Or his team selection. But... Um, part of this is the the nonsense that we heard in the summer about how good they were you know I, mm. you know sometimes when a podcast runs on and and it it takes you back to a previous podcast from months ago so i i stumbled upon one of my favorites which is of course duncan castle's transfer window <laughs> and it was just this little segment that was talking Why? about navigator against west ham and forget why why and how and it's these these terrible things. This is what yeah. I do to myself. But um, it was talking about. Uh, I think he played against West Ham. I think it was West Ham at home as well. Maybe. Anyway, they were saying, "Well, you know, he clearly looks like he could be in the running for Player of the Year." That's like you know. Remember, this is where we were not very long ago. So it takes a long time for players to settle. I don't think it's that big a deal. Maybe the players weren't quite as good as as people were winding them up to be. And in fairness. Um, you know, particularly Milner and Wijnaldum have played really well. Uh, so, I'd be if I was a Liverpool fan, I'd be super relaxed uh, because it's an incredible start. Um, the Champions League is disappointing, but what can you do? They're in a very tough group, um, and I think it would be really harsh to criticise a manager that's done thirty-three points from thirteen games in the Premier League. Okay. Okay, fair enough. That's a pretty robust defensive club. Not going to argue with that. Um, just finally on on the uh, on the Merseyside derby, um, 
well, on Liverpool, really. What would you prefer? Would you prefer them to drop into the Europa League or for them to stay in the Champions League for the second half of the season? Stefan? My biggest fear is they fall out of all of it. Okay. Finish fourth. I mean, I think that's still possible, it's isn't it? It's highly unlikely. It is indeed. Um, I bet they'd have to lose at home and then PSG lose in there. Well, that, PSG could lose. It's a tough place to go to, but... PSG can lose, yeah. I, I think Liverpool will beat Napoli, I, I, but people seem to think it's a coin toss as to whether they beat them too. No, I think it's likely that they go out um, and, and, and go into the Europa, which I think would be very good news, uh, assuming that uh, Klopp does what almost every manager does and takes it seriously. Uh, I think with the, with the Europa, there is a risk that he just says, we are going for the league, we're sacrificing the Europa, I'm playing a B team and that it is what it is, in which case then it'll be better for us if they're in the Champions League because you would never do that in the Champions League. Mm. Having said that, there's a load of games. There's a, there's a minimum number of games, isn't there, in the, the Europa? So, so maybe that doesn't work. You know, they'll finish second, so they'll, they'll get a difficult game. They could be out in the round of 16 anyway. Yeah, I don't know. True. I've twisted myself up there. I think, I think statistically, I think statistically, um, title challenging teams who drop out of the Champions League, their title challenges tend to actually falter, and that includes having no European football after Christmas. I think it's it's a different situation if you just have no European football all season. But I think statistically, teams who drop out of Europe at Christmas time. In the new year, they struggle actually to maintain a title challenge. I think because I imagine that it's easier to keep the the high level and the high mental focus required to win a title when you're basically, because the Champions League is at such a high level, there's just no let up. Whereas I think that when you begin to get into this idea of, well, we've got all week to prepare for, you know, Huddersfield or somebody like that, you wonder how that prep goes. And similarly, this kind of Europa League thing where you rotate heavily to do well in one. So like, let's say that you decide that Liverpool drop into the Europa League and they go, well, we're not bothered about the Europa League. So we're going to rotate and play the squad players in the Europa and then keep the, uh, the league players for the league. Also, similarly, I think statistically, that doesn't have a positive effect on a title challenge, um, so it will be interesting to see to see what they uh, where they end up. I think it very much did the Europa. Uh, what it's impossible to put a total B team out anyway. It just I don't think it really happens like that. Yeah, you can rest. You can rest Salah for the you know a couple of rounds. You can rest a couple of key players, but I don't think you really see. I mean, Arsenal can do it in the in the league stage because they know they're getting through anyway, but. Uh, you know, in the knockout stage, I don't think you can just drop every one of your big players. Of course, it really just depends. If they did drop into Europe at the time that they played the first game, it depends what the league situation is. If they're eight, nine points behind, he's got to make a decision because he needs to win a trophy, some trophy. So he may then think, well, actually, Europa yeah. League's my best chance, not the league. So, yeah, a lot of it would depend if they're still neck and neck at the top of the table. Okay. Yeah, get them in that Europa, I think. Uh, you know, I think what you just said about the way that these teams generally perform after they've fallen out of the Champions League is also 
by its nature, if you've fallen out of the Champions League, you finish third or fourth in the group, it shows that you do have some issues with the squad. Yeah, so exactly. you know, I know that contradicts what I just said about Klopp's start to the season, but you know, uh, they, they haven't, they, they've clearly not played well in, in, in those away games. I mean, I, you know, it's not been like a city fall off of, of level that we just talked about. From what I can gather, not I didn't watch all the games, but from what I can gather from the press reaction, they were really poor against Napoli. They were really poor against Belgrade, and they were pretty poor against PSG. It's not yes. a kind of they were just five percent off. No, 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 it was big. Yeah, definitely. I think that they're uh, overall. That's where the kind of murmurings of discontent around Klopp stem from. It's just this idea that you know. They got to the final last season and and they kind of felt, you know, Liverpool fans are like, you know, they felt like they're the best team in the world again. And then, you know, reality seems to be biting quite hard for them at the moment because they were rubbish against Napoli. To They were even more rubbish against Red Star. And, you know, they were rubbish against Paris because Paris aren't that good. No matter what you say, I mean, you know, Thomas Tuchel saying that's, you know, our best performance of the season or whatever it was that he said. I mean, they've been crap and they weren't that good. And they tried, they shut up shop after an hour. Do you know what I mean? They literally, they got two goals. They, they got two goals in front. They got the one penalty back. And then an hour into the game, Tuchel's gone. Okay, game over. And he's tried to shut it down. And Liverpool had absolutely nothing. So, yeah, no. It's going to be it's going to be an interesting end to the Champions League campaign for them, and I am curious to see how they react. Whatever happens, um, okay. Let's talk briefly about Bournemouth's trip to the Etihad this weekend. Uh, Howard, the cliched <laughs> "Does Eddie Howe deserve a bigger job than Bournemouth?" question, uh, and actually, the wider Eddie Howe is the narrative manager of the season at the moment. Yeah. Um, are we in danger of looking at these one-off every season? There's a team, a manager who seem to overachieve. Are we in danger of every season immediately anointing those managers, particularly when they're English uh, and talk of sort of saying, well, it's not fair. They never get given a big job. That whole thing that happens, that dance that happens in the media, whenever these managers do well, do you think that's do you think that's a fair narrative or is it literally just yeah. narrative? Oh yeah, there's always you know, one manager, uh, one English manager, of course. Uh, at least Sean Dyche is out of the running this season. But does he deserve a bigger job? Well, yeah, probably. Uh, but he's got time on his side. Maybe he don't want a bigger job. We don't, yeah, we don't know what's gone on, what he's been offered, or anything. Don't have to be in England either, to be honest. But you know, we assume he's he moves upwards in the table he's in. You know, in the league he's in. But you know. It's a global uh, game. Uh, that, yeah, that managed the year thing. Let, let's not talk about that for now. <laughs> because every year, yeah, you could give it to a manager of someone who finishes seventh or eighth because they've exceeded expectations. But it's not how I'd do it, to be honest. Uh, I think the one who wins the league should get it most of the time. Uh, yeah, mm. uh, it would. we just don't know. Yeah, we've had this conversation many times is he is he just some managers are just a perfect match for a single you know certain club and Eddie Howe is certainly a perfect match for Bournemouth Football Club and we don't know until we take yeah it's, until no no Isn't I just that a bit patronising no, though not in the sense it just you know he's he's part of the job he's well no when you say like he's, he's been there so long he's so embedded in there he's so you know 
part of the furniture almost, and he's. I know I don't think it's patronising the slightest. I just think he's perfect for the the club he's at. But that doesn't mean I don't think he can do it anywhere else. I'm just saying it has happened in the past that a manager has you know had ultra success at a in speech about smaller club gone on somewhere and never replicated it. Mm. Uh, for what we yeah we 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 don't know we don't know what he's like with egos with big players with a transfer fund of a hundred million and so on. I I think he'd be fine at. A, bigger club but what I'm feeling is there's no opportunities there and he won't get that opportunity in the near future so okay um Stefan before I ask you whether their league, current league position is sustainable just very quickly uh, I read recently uh that somebody who'd spoken to Eddie Howe's assistant or something like that and the word that had come back was that Eddie Howe has in the last two years knocked back some pretty big jobs and the kind of underlying implication was that he was actually approached by Arsenal and he said no and he was actually approached by Everton and he said no um is that naive a lack of ambition like how do you how do you view something like that because on the one hand you've got the narrative of Eddie Howe deserves a bigger job but then on the other hand it seems to me that when bigger jobs have been floated he's been like oh no that's not for me I doubt he turned down Arsenal. I mean, that's just a bit... I, I can't believe that. Um, I think the Marco Silva thing is interesting. I, yeah, I don't know what he was offered. So, but, but fundamentally, I think he's done an incredible job. And if Marco Silva can go Watford to Everton, then surely surely he can go to a club of, of Everton's size. The interesting one will be Spurs, I would think, for mm. anyhow. Uh You know, I think he feels obvious that he ends up there in a way. It's a you know, it's a it's a big job where when Pochettino leaves because you know there'll be this impression that well, it just be it just be tough, won't it? I mean, it'll deflate the club, and then he's coming into that situation being asked to work with with a tight budget. Anyway, I, I don't know. I, I think he does deserve a bigger job. I think he's done a great job there. Um, he does seem pretty smart from what I've seen, uh, but it is completely different. You know, it's like running corner shop to running a much bigger organisation. The job's just different. So mm. uh, we'll have to see. I don't know. Um, do you think? Do you think that you can go from that level to directly? to City, United, Liverpool, Arsenal, Chelsea? Or do you think that you have to first take a middle step and then within within that middle step, create a different pressure for the teams above you and then you get no. talked about in the big, big job conversation? Well, I think there's a difference between whether you've got the ability and can do it, as, as in have the you know, capability of, of running a bigger club as a person, as Eddie Howe, yeah. versus whether you will get the opportunity. So, mm. uh, yeah, I think it's very hard for him to get the opportunity, but I suspect he, he definitely believes he can do it. I mean, Pochettino kind of did it. You know, what, Espanyol, Southampton, Spurs. True. Southampton, it's a slightly bigger club than Bournemouth. Okay, probably quite a bit bigger, but it's still a big it's still a big jump and and it wasn't a particular problem although I guess he's an Argentina international which I think is also an important element to it Eddie Howe going into a dressing room without that you know history as a player would he have the right 
um, personality for the dressing room. Don't know, question mark there. Okay, fair enough. Um, last one on on uh, on Bournemouth before we kind of look at City's approach to this game briefly. Uh, Howard David Brooks, uh, happy to see him making a name for himself. I actually didn't realise that he'd come through the youth system or had been a youth player at City, but apparently he has, and I've seen many people tout him as so far being their signing of the season. So, yeah, happy to to see him doing well. And is he another example of a player who's who kind of shows that you can go at the Championship and develop into uh, a Premier League I player? Care less, <laughs> to be honest. Uh, it's not been on my radar either and I don't care <laughs> I mean I'm very happy for him that he's done well but yeah to say that yeah I know he was he was at us for 10 years but no didn't come on my radar much uh, haven't given it much thought I'm afraid Aysen. Uh and yeah I, I'm That's pleased right. to see but I'm always pleased to see players like that yeah and he's you know he went to Sheffield United at 17 I think the age of 17 uh, so he's there about three years. I think they loaned him to Port Vale for a bit first. Uh, or not to count. No, it might be Port Vale. Anyway, loaned him out for a bit. He's done well. He only played for about 30 times. And, you know, the Sheffield United got, I think it's cost like £11.5 million. So quite substantial for a young player from the Championship. Uh, but, yeah, he's, yeah, from what I've seen of him, he's absolutely, yeah, he's just come on leap and bounds. He's obviously improved at a, a rate of knots in the recent years. So, yeah, I'm pleased for him, but, you know, because of the City link, I can't say I'm too overly concerned. But, yeah, I mean, your favourite, uh, Madison, he obviously, I think he... Who did he play for in the the Championship? But there's, there's quite a few, aren't there, playing well in the Premier League right now who've had that grounding in the Championship, which is, you know, an ultra-competitive league. So yeah, it's a, it's a great place for the young players to play, and it really does help them. I think develop. There's obviously that problem of a jump up. Obviously, it's completely different level once you hit the Premier League. But yeah, it seems to have done quite a few young players a, a lot of good at the moment. It's almost like David Just, uh, Brooks had a, a good football education at a top football <laughs> university. <laughs> well said, Stefan. Hey, listen, lads, just very quickly, it seems my opening question was very prescient. Um, I'm reading, Twitter tells me that um, uh, there's a story been done by Matt Law that's been published in the last hour saying that from the 2021 season, FIFA are going to introduce a limit of eight players that can be loaned out. And uh, Chelsea have uh, been written to and warned. Uh, to get their house to be Chelsea, surely. Next, uh, 12, 12. I don't, I, I think apparently Chelsea got 38 players out on loan. I know we've got a lot of players out on loan, but I don't think it's 38. Maybe I'm, well, maybe the I'm 20s. wrong. We're in the 20s. We're, we're not really, uh, yeah, yeah, we've got a lot. Yeah, but why, why eight? Okay, you know, it's just well, a yeah, it's just plucked out of the air. Why eight? I mean, it makes. Well, well, well eight, eight is a, it's eight because eight is a super low number, which basically says that the way you've been doing it before and having yeah. a football factory yeah, it kills the system, yeah. and it's now eight because you've got a couple of teams and that's it, you know, yeah. and 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 deal with it. So they've just killed the entire investment that is being made in that space, save for clubs that have got four or five different clubs. I can't think of any groups that have got that. <laughs> and I wonder what I wonder who pushed for this to come in. Was it all FIFA or did 
did some uh, owners of certain football clubs have a word? Not that I'm, not that I'm being cynical or anything. I suspect that. No. Yeah, I suspect that when you look at when you look at the names that signed off on European financial fair play, I suspect you'll find the same names that are demanding that there's limits on the number of players that can be loaned. Basically, I, for, look, from my point of view, fundamentally, it is an FFP dodge. It always felt like that from City's point of view, from Chelsea's point of view. It's a smart way to get around FFP. But it doesn't surprise me that FIFA are doing this. And it always sort of made me uncomfortable. So I think I've said on a podcast in the past that it wouldn't bother me in the slightest if they brought uh, these limits in. Just wait and for I, Brexit uh, as well. I, I don't, and, you know, home just... limits put down. Obviously, the Premier League will fight that anyway. But yeah, there could be a lot of changes. Yeah, no, they well, won't. Well, they sure. won't be able to. Well, hang on, they won't be able to fight it that much. It's going to have a massive impact. Massive. So, so yeah. on on two bases on this. This youth basis is going to have a massive impact anyway. So effectively, all we've just done now, if that if this does come in, is is cut the size of our academy uh, because the numbers aren't going to work. So I don't think it's been that great a FFP dodge either. I don't think it's generated. Oh. Yeah, so, oh, I read 144 million in sales. So. Uh, yeah, but what do you think the cost of this operation is? Yeah, massive. Well, does that come off our? Um, I mean, some of these players are on enormous wages. Yeah, but the different the difference is that it, in terms of the like, if you if you, I mean, you're yeah. the commercial guy, so I'm not going to argue with you. But basically, the the cost of the academy itself is not put is not taken uh, into yeah. account for financial fair play reasons. But the sale of the players is taken into account. So in that sense, it does kind of become an FFP right. dodge because it doesn't matter if you spend... I mean, we're talking from our position where we've got Shape Man Saw, so there's no danger of him running out of money or not wanting to do this anymore. But So he can invest into the academy to the tune of whatever it is that he's invested. And then the players that they churn out, like Howard said, £140 million is... Even if it's over two, three summers, that's quite some income to be able to book against what you're no, out I, I totally get that. And I will have to uh, refer that up to um, one of my FFP advisors. <laughs> How many do you have? Uh, <laughs> I have a whole team. You know, it's very important to employ them yeah. full time for questions just such as this. Uh, technical, very, very advanced technical questions such as this. Uh, I don't know. I'd be amazed if it's as simple as you can load all of the cost of building a whole load of young players and then you get all of the upside. It might be true. Um, that would be a good dodge. Um, and and then, then it is probably quite a loss, actually, if we're going to only be able to have eight players and have no way of, of blooding them anywhere. Uh, don't know. Maybe that will be yeah. a, more of an issue. Um, I think they just need to do it on a smaller scale. I think they need to be a little bit more selective. I think there's a there's a a, a, a seri- there was I felt a serious drive for marginal financial gains by sending these kids out on loan to Breda or wherever it is, and then using that as a platform to sell them on to in the Dutch league for a couple of million each. But the, those kind of marginal financial gains, I think that that's what's really going to be. Not but the 144, um, I, I, the vast majority of the 144 will be some of the bigger chunks that we've received for players. Oh, yeah. Players so like Ian Atro, uh, for example. Um, yeah, and, and Ian Danea. Something. Um, Danea, there's another one. Um, we should have talked about Danea and how come he looks like a proper centre-half. 
Anyway. Yeah. No, no, I, that, that's, a, that's a very good point. I, well, it's just I interesting, the concept of Leon, isn't it? That, you know, if you want a good example for a player who probably raises his game in that kind of environment, you know, here's a player that was ham- how far down our pecking list, you know, couldn't, couldn't get near the team. He did a did a mm. pretty good job at the back, I thought, in both games. Yeah, yeah. no, absolutely, he did. Anyway. I, uh, but he's, there's always been there's always been a decent talent in there. Whether he was good enough to play for City is a different conversation. But yeah, I'm I'm happy to see him him doing well, and it does it does say something for for the football factory that we have created. Um, okay, very quickly, let's talk about City and their approach to the game against Bournemouth. Um, Howard, any cause for concern after the chances that West Ham and Leon created that with Bournemouth being such a vibrant attacking side? Yeah. Well, I'm not one to be pessimistic or worried, obviously, prior to a match, so totally confident. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, to be honest, we should... This is a game where again we should score three or four because I don't think defensively they'll they'll be able to keep us out. But yeah, they are a vibrant side. But you know, let's not forget they have lost the three the last three league games. So the question is, I mean, at home to Arsenal they were pretty good and they could probably have tad unlucky to lose that. Lost at home to United, which is pretty embarrassing. Uh, but they lost away to Newcastle in the last away game. Newcastle have won the last three as well, so maybe that's not that bad. But are they on a downward spiral now, or they've just had a tough run and not had the breaks? Well, I guess we'll find more during the, find out more uh, on Saturday. Yeah, yeah. They, I mean, they definitely the way they play, they definitely are the bright. They do create chances, but wouldn't be surprised if we conceded. But to be honest, we should be scoring a hatful against them if we play to the level that we have, you know, so far this season. Hmm. Okay. Stefan, would you would you go along with that? It, it, are we kind of getting to that stage where the the games of of uh, this this type of home game almost becomes quite difficult to preview in the sense that it is what it is. You expect to win. You can't really even build any type of argument for why it might not be a win. You, you see what I'm saying? Well, I've been blowing at least ten pound a week on. Insurance bets uh, the other way, so I've got, so you can always I can always construct an argument. So nil nil is fifty to one tomorrow. One nil Bournemouth is a uh, hundred to one. These are all Betfair. Two ninety to one for two nil Bournemouth, and eighty to one two one Bournemouth. I don't think any other result is possible, um, or you know, or, or for for Bournemouth winning. So. That says to you that it is difficult because the other interesting thing about when you look at the odds is we are smaller odds, shorter odds to win 3 0 than we are to win 1 or 2 0. Yeah. Because we average, yeah. I mean, the last so, three times we've wow. played them at home, it's been 4 0, 4 0, 5 1, I think. So, because they're not, Eddie Howe's not a manager to sit back, is he? So. Yeah. No, well, that was actually going to be the flip side of my question about. Um, Eddie Howe and Bournemouth is that yes they present some type of vibrant attacking play and they're a difficult it's a difficult place to go to but the flip side of that is that uh, I don't think Eddie Howe's record against uh, the top six away from home is anything at all to write home about and they are capable of shipping not just a goal but goals in multiples yeah and I don't think they can score can they really I mean Fame. I don't. I, I don't want to jinx it, but it seems very hard to believe they can score more than once. 
Um, and so you therefore have City winning comfortably. I mean, I was listening to, it just occurred to me listening to podcasts recently where you get to the end and people do score predictions, not just this podcast, but other podcasts. Everybody's kind of, yeah, well, it's four, five. It's, you know, I mean, this is, we're in crazy times. Um, but it is hard to, to look beyond that when, you know, if you think about the pattern of the game, this is why I think it's so ridiculous when people say, well, you know, have Leon and West Ham shown teams what they should do. They should really open up and go for City. To me, it's the exact opposite. If, if Bournemouth do play open tomorrow and do go at us, they will get spanked. So, um, yeah, these, these are, it's difficult to preview the games. It's very difficult to say that we don't win comfortably. It, that, that is just what it is. Um, especially if we've got you know, players like Silver back, um, I think they'll win the game. But I guess maybe you could have some some a red card or something early yeah. on that could change. Well, it. you say it's crazy times. We average over three goals a game. Plus, I mean, you know, and that includes a nil-nil at Anfield and a one-nil at, at Wembley. So you take out those two big games and we're, we're heading towards, I don't know, three and a half plus per game. Yeah. Over, yeah, you know, over a third of the season. It's like best team in the land and all <laughs> well, the world, mate. Steady. <laughs> right, listen. What, bore, um, what a boring preview that was. You see, <laughs> no, no, but you see, that is the problem that we. I mean, it's not. It's a nice problem to have, but you know, what do you say? I mean, yes, we should win the game. It's really as simple as that. Yeah. No. Look, I think I think that um, there's my. Uh, experience in the last few years of podcasting and in general with support and media is that you know when things are going really really well it's not necessarily something that everybody's reaching for it's when there's a negative narrative that everybody wants to you know it's like forums i remember when i used to visit blue moon and you know city would win and the forum would be dead but Lord forbid City drop points, it would be, you know, be millions of posts and millions of people. Cool. That's just, just imagine it's podcast in 99. Yeah. Uh, okay. 98. <laughs> okay, Howard, give me a, give me a score prediction for, uh, for, one. for City Bournemouth. No, no, four five one. Nice, I like it. Five one, okay, fair enough. <laughs> Interesting. Interesting. Um, I actually think that Bournemouth will get a goal, uh, but I think that we'll score three. I think it'll be 3-1, and I think it'll be a comfortable 3-1. I imagine that Bournemouth's goal will be a late-ish consolation, and I imagine that City will miss a hatful Uh, of chances. We'll go three and they'll score, then we'll get another two late-ish on. You heard it here first. I'm getting cocky because I predicted two all in Leon. Very nice. it's what you know. There's going to be people wondering what happened to Howard Hawking. Where's he gone, and who's the fellow who's replaced him? Who keeps predicting? Don't these worry, one bad result. Confidence. <laughs> with introing with funeral <laughs> music. So, well, play, playing what you just said back to you. If we don't win the game, uh, it's going to be yeah, quite painful. I'll just go for into you. hiding. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I'm going to play that back if we uh, if we don't win. Right, okay. Um, what's my prediction? Yeah, 3-1. I think it'll be 3-1. Um, Stefan, thank you very much. Cheers. Yeah, pleasure as always. Howard, thank you very much. 
to everybody who listened, thank you very much. This was the Friday show on the 9320 podcast. I don't often do this, but once you're done listening to this, go to the Blue Moon podcast and check out some unbelievable <laughs> work from Mr. Hawking over over with the rivals. What he's done this week, it's kind of cut that he didn't do it on our podcast, but it's brilliant. It's well worth going to the Blue Moon podcast and checking it out. In the meantime, have a lovely weekend. And as always, up the blues.